Please join me for a word of prayer. God, take my words, speak through them. Take our minds, think through them. Take our will, set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. A new sermon series this morning is called The Unforgiving Minute. That's uh, my favorite line from one of my favorite poems. It's a poem by Rudyard Kipling entitled If. The poem works with uh, each stanza gives a condition for maturity. If you can do this, that, or the other, then you will be mature. Kipling is writing to his son, so it's addressed to a young boy. Then you will be a man, my son, if you can keep your head. One of the last stanzas, the last stanza is, uh, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds of distance run, then yours is the earth and all that is in it. And what's more, you will be a man, my son. The unforgiving minute. When Kipling wrote the unforgiving minute, what he meant was that not all minutes are created equal. Some minutes simply matter more than others. They are unforgiving. And inaction in these minutes or misaction is simply counts more uh, than the same act or lack thereof in other minutes. During this sermon series, we're going to look at a few moments and a few characters from the Old Testament, a few pivotal moments that mattered more than others. And as we look at them, I hope we will learn from them. I hope we will be inspired by them. Because I, like you, want to have a life that is significant. I want to fill those important moments of my life. And just the same way you want to fill the important moments of your life with 60 seconds worth of distance run. This morning, we're going to look at the story of David and Goliath. It's one of my favorite stories, a great story, of, uh, certainly a great story within the Bible and a great story just within all of literature. And as we look at this story, we're going to discover that certainly David did fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds of distance run. Yes, he did. But we're going to discover that the things he did uh, that made his, uh, that enabled him to fill the unforgiving minute were all things that are not that remarkable. Built one on top of the other produced a remarkable result. But the things that I'm going to point us to in the text, these are all things that you and I can do and should do. So as we look at David's unforgiving minute, we're going to first see that David perceived. Then we're going to see that David felt. And next we're going to see that David acted. Each one of these by themselves is not remarkable, very attainable for you and me. Put together, they're a potent combination. I think it will be helpful for you to have the Bible open in front of you. We're going to look at the entirety of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. You'll find it, I don't have a page number for you, but it's in the first fourth, uh, fourth of your Bible, 1 Samuel, it's one of the early books. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Our first observation from the life, from this story is what David perceived. And I really think, I think this is the hinge point. This is the most important aspect of the entire story is what David perceived. 
And in order to appreciate what David perceived, it will be helpful for us to consider what everyone else saw, because David did not see what everyone else saw. The story begins in chapter 17, verse 1. The Philistines gathered for battle. Philistines on one side, the army of Israel on the other. And the Philistines had a champion. His name, of course, was Goliath. Apparently, this was some sort of representative battle when the champion, Goliath, looked for a, a, a foe from the other side and the stakes of each army held in the balance. The Philistine wins and the army wins. The Israel, Israelite wins and the whole army wins. And the next few verses, if you're following along with me in chapter 17, verse 4, there came out of the camp a champion, a camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath. And just look at the uh, painstaking detail that are used in the next several verses. The next first few verses describe the Philistines' height, his armor, his helmet, uh, that describes the, the weight of the tip of his spear weighing as much as a bowling ball. That's what they saw. An absolutely intimidating foe. And not only did they see, but they heard. Verse 10, Goliath shouts at the army, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man to fight. So they saw and they heard. Verse 11, Saul and army, all of the army were dismayed. They were greatly afraid. Now here comes an important principle. What they felt was determined by what they saw. They saw, they saw an unbeatable opponent. They heard a belligerent challenge. And what they saw and heard, what they perceived informed what they felt. They felt afraid. Now, David did not see what they saw. David did not hear what they heard. He did not perceive what they perceived. Now, a few verses earlier in chapter 16 were introduced to David. And David is described in chapter 16, verse 12. It's a, he's described as being ruddy, means he was tan. I'm not sure why that factored into the biblical description, but there you have it. David was tan. Uh, he was handsome. And then there's this wonderful little phrase that says that he had beautiful eyes. Beautiful eyes. Some commentators have speculated that this phrase, beautiful eyes, did not just refer to how David looked, but also referred to how David saw. Makes sense? It, not only how David was perceived, but David's ability to perceive was beautiful. That may sound a little bit cryptic. Think about it. David was a poet, the most famous poet to ever live. That's no exaggeration. The 23rd Psalm is the most well-known Psalm of all time. What makes a poet great? What makes a poem great? Is it the ability of a poet to use creative words in a creative ways? Well, that certainly doesn't hurt, but I don't think a good poem is based upon language or use of language. A good poem is good because a poet doesn't write well. A good poem is good because a poet sees well. Think of David sitting on a hillside and he sees a shepherd and the shepherd is tending his sheep and taking his sheep to still waters and green grass and guiding his sheep with a staff and a rod. And, and David has eyes to see something 
beautiful. He sees, ah, there, in that picture, in that image of that shepherd leading those sheep, I see an image of my heavenly father, his, his constant, protective, and abiding care for me. So the Lord is my shepherd. He sees beautifully. He saw what no one else saw. And that's true when he was sitting on that hillside washing the sheep. And that's true this day as he sees the Philistine. David, as he looked at the champion Goliath and heard Goliath defy the armies of Israel, he saw something that no one else saw. They saw, they heard, they perceived a belligerent challenge from an unbeatable foe. That is what they heard. That is what they saw. He saw something completely different. He saw someone defying the undefiable, someone uttering the unutterable. Look at verse 26 of our passage. He says, who is this that defies the armies of the living God? By implication, who is this that defies God? He did not see an unbeatable opponent, did not hear a belligerent challenge, did not perceive impossible odds. He simply saw someone doing something that should not be done, saying things that should not be said. That is what he saw. And his question reveals what he felt. Who is this? We're not told how he felt, but his question reveals how he felt. You don't ask the question, who is this, when you're curious about identity. You ask the question, who is this, out of anger. Who is this that would do such a thing? And that is what David felt. Who is this, an expression of anger, of indignation. David saw. David heard. And as he saw and as he heard, he thought and he contemplated and he ruminated until what he saw and what he heard caused a fire of indignation to burn within him. Appreciate the contrast. Everyone else was afraid because of what they perceived. But David did not see what they saw. And therefore, David did not feel what they felt. Everyone else was afraid. David, he just got mad. I think the appropriate word for David at this moment is zeal. Zeal. He was passionate. I think zeal is the equivalent of writing with all caps in an email. <laughs> David had passion. He was passionate for God. He was passionate for those things that oppose God. Now, Dorothy Sayers, you may know that author, she was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, a mystery author. And she writes of a common sin, the sin of despair. And this is a sin that David was not encumbered by in this moment. Dorothy Sayers writes, despair is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, and lives for nothing. In this moment, David is not encumbered by despair. He loves, he hates, he believes, he's willing to live for, willing to die for what he believes. And how he felt informed how he acted. Verse 44, the Philistine said to David, come, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. 
And David said, You come to me with a sword, spear, javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, for the battle belongs to the Lord. And the rest is history. David filled the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds of distance run. Why? How? It started with what he saw. And what he saw informed how he felt. And how he felt informed how he acted. And it all begins with what he perceived. His beautiful eyes. I want to draw a point of implication from this story, the principles we observe here, and then a point of application, a reassuring implication, and then a challenging application from this principle. David saw, felt, and acted. First, a, a reassuring implication. Now, in some of the Old Testament stories and some of the Old Testament characters, we should read them and think that there's something in here that is better they, they, these characters are doing more, are, are behaving in a way that is representative of God. There's something true and profoundly true about how David acted that should point us to think of, ah, that's, there's something true about God and how David acted. And this is especially true of King David. King David was Jesus' great-great-great-great-grandfather. King David's greater son is a name for Jesus. And so as we look at David in this moment, we see something that is true of God. David saw, felt, and acted. Friends, God sees, feels, and acts. God perceives. And because he perceives, he feels. Because he feels, he acts. But it starts with his perception. And God's ability to perceive is the great miscalculation of the wicked. Listen to Psalm chapter 10. Psalm chapter 10, the wicked lie in ambush like a lion. They lurk that they may seize the poor. The wicked says, now listen to it, listen. The wicked says in their heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He won't see. But they're wrong. God does see. Verse 10 continues, God's ability to perceive is not only the great miscalculation of the wicked, God's ability to perceive is the hope of the afflicted. And so Psalm 10 continues, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted, because you do see. You note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hand. Isn't that great? You note mischief. You note vexation. As we think about our vexed world, 12 lives lost in Virginia Beach for no apparent reason. As we think of mischief and vexation, we should be comforted that God sees it. He takes it into his hand. God's ability to perceive is cause for question by those who are perplexed by his inaction. Again, Psalm 13, how long shall I have perplexity in my mind? Look upon me. Look, see me. Look and answer me. God's ability to perceive is a source of comfort for the downtrodden and the bereaved. 
Again, the psalmist, Psalm 56, you have kept account of my tossings and my turnings. You've put my tears in a bottle, and they are recorded in your book. Isn't that a lovely sentiment? Think tossing and turning at 2 a.m., tears maybe on your cheek. The psalmist has the assurance that his heavenly father is watching him, keeping track, counting the tossing and the turning. He sees. And just as in our story, because he sees, he feels, because he feels, he acts. His acts are almost never what we expect, nor when we expect it. But he sees nonetheless. And I hope that's a reassuring implication. The Lord perceives. He sees you. And now for a challenging application and maybe you can see the point of application coming. The point of application is simply to develop eyesight like David, like David's eyesight, to begin to see just a little bit how David saw. As we're introduced to David, we're told something that is true of God, that God does not see as man sees. Man looks by the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, and that was true of David. And so my encouragement for us this week is to prayerfully consider what I would see? What would I perceive if I perceived like God perceived? I wonder if you know the story of Jean Venier. He is an example of one man who I think saw as God sees. And because he saw, he acted, he felt, because he felt, he acted. Jean Venier died May 7, 2019. He was the founder of L'Arche, that's French for the Ark, a community of care for the impaired. And he was memorialized almost universally in very secular magazines, newspapers, very irreligious publications could not help but celebrate uh, the testimony of his life and of his vision, his ability to see. I thought it would be helpful just to read an extended portion, this is an abbreviated, it's a little bit long, but bear with me because here is an example of someone who saw, I believe, saw with beautiful eyes. The village of Trosley, north of Paris, lay so close to the forest that the forest seemed about to engulf it. The village mental institution, which Jean Venier visited in the early 1960s was gloomier still a place of horror. With little work to do, young men sat around for most of the day. They were not allowed to leave the building. Some were violent, screaming. They were pacified with injections, and he was struck by an overwhelming atmosphere of sadness. Their families and the world had abandoned them. They cried out to be looked on with kindness, called by their name, not despised, but loved. Do you see the connection of what he saw? And what he saw inspired what he felt. He felt sad. Feeling that he must do something. In 1964, 
he bought a small stone house in Trossley. It was falling to bits with no electricity or plumbing, but it would serve the purpose, and then he invited two of the young men from the institution, Raphael and Philip, to live with him there. They would share meals and chores and make a little foyer like a family. They said yes at once. Philip had a paralyzed leg, a withered right hand, and poor eyesight. He repeated himself constantly. Raphael, damaged by a meningitis, knew 20 words only, fell often, and had fits of anger. Yet in both boys, listen, he saw, in both boys he saw radiance, and most important, he saw tenderness. From his invitation to these two young men and their acceptance sprang a network of 150 house-based communities in over 38 countries. Here, those with mental impairment and those without it lived and worked together as friends, each person doing what they could manage. For him, Laarche was rooted in his following of Jesus. Whatever was done for the poor, the suffering, the imprisoned was done for him, for Jesus too was vulnerable and Jesus was a servant. The same message appeared in his lectures and his books, more than 30 of them, that those who were most rejected and despised by society had the most to teach it, and those who seemed weakest exposed weakness in others. That from The Economist, May 10. Do you see the progression? He saw, because he saw, he felt, because he felt, he acted. And so my encouragement for us this week is to prayerfully consider what would it be like to see as God sees, to count, measure beauty as God measures beauty, to measure success as God measures success, to measure our failures and challenges like God sees our failures and our challenges. To see as David saw, to see as God sees. Here we come to a conclusion. The great physicist Max Planck, who made such great advancements in quantum physics. Quantum physics is an area of physics where no one can see. I only know about it because of Ant-Man. Quantum physics... It's your only humor for the entire sermon, so. <laughs> Max Planck wrote, modern physics impresses us particularly with the truth of the old doctrine, which teaches us that there are realities existing apart from sense perception, and that there are problems and conflicts where these realities are of greater value for us than the richest treasures of the world of experience. The Bible affirms what this physicist has discovered, that there are realities existing beyond the reach of your sense perception. And these realities are of greater value than what we can gain with our own eyesight. And so my encouragement to you, to me, this week, is God help us to see. And seeing, feeling, and feeling acting.